Welcome to U of Today. I'm Paul Pepys, director of the Oregon Humanities Center. My guest today is Stefan Alexander, professor of physics at Brown University and the president of the National Society of Black Physicists. Alexander is a theoretical physicist specializing in cosmology, particle physics, and quantum gravity. An avid jazz saxophonist, Alexander explores interconnections between music, physics, mathematics, and technology through recordings, performance, teaching, and public lecture. lectures. His first book, The Jazz of Physics, The Secret Link Between Music and the Structure of the Universe was published in 2016. His second book, Fear of a Black Universe, An Outsider's Guide to the Future of Physics is forthcoming in August. Alexander will give a public talk, What a Scientist Learned from Jazz About Innovation, on April 22, 2021, as a guest of the University of Oregon's Physics Department and the Oregon Humanities Center. Thanks so much, Stefan, for coming on the show. Um, thank you so much, Dr. Pepys. Oh, may I call you Paul? Of course. Okay. Um, <laughs> Yeah, no, it's a real pleasure to be here. I'm, uh, you know, I, <laughs> I've always wanted to engage, um, um, you know, Oregon, you know, you all, and, and because when I was in college, I ran cross country, and like I went to I went to a small liberal arts college out, out east, and the um, wait, um, we call him he was referred to him as Pre, who was um, you know the I, I, I um the miler and cross country runner from UO. So anyway, that's just uh. Free is a god in our town. <laughs> if you could be with us in person, we could take you uh, to Pree's trail where he ran. That's that's what I dream of. I want to come out there and run. You know, I mean, whatever little run I, I can do now, I definitely want to do that. But we we worship Pree when we were, um, and our cross country team worshipped him. Um, he's a legend. Uh, you you said it. Well, we'll we'll look forward to the day when we can welcome you in the flesh. Okay. So let's start um, at the beginning. Tell us a little bit about your background. Yeah, so um, sort of, yeah, and um, was born in, in the Caribbean, in Trinidad, in Tobago, um, country to country, um, and then moved to New York City um, in 1979 when I was eight years old, and I grew up in the Bronx, New York. And I'm pretty much a Bronx boy, you know. Um, now, in terms of, you mean like academic background? Um, that well, that's, my, that's, that's my next question. So, okay. you know, what, what, what led to your interest in physics? How did you become an academic? Yeah, I think I give a lot of credit. I mean, obviously to, you know, to my, my upbringing. Uh, believe it or not, growing up in, in, um, in the Bronx, you know, I was very hooked, um, of course, on sci-fi and comic books, Marvel um, comic books. I, you know, everybody wanted to build an Iron Man suit. Um, but also um, hip hop, like, you know, the hip hop culture, there was a very innovative, um, especially when it came down to like making the beats and um, that type of innovation, the digital sampling. I kind of got intrigued by like how the, you know, inner work, what, what made a sampler work. And that then led me down the rabbit hole of like, you know, electrons and, um, and trying to understand the physics of that. And of course, a high school teacher, Mr. Daniel Kaplan, um, who encouraged me to go to college and study physics. Um, so I would say those are the kind of the, some of the main things. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about Daniel Kaplan. Um, you tell some really f fascinating stories about him. He must have been an amazing teacher. Um, Tell us that one story that, you know, the, 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 the first day you met him, the first day you went to his class. Tell us that story. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, during that time, that was 10th grade. Um, and, and the one thing I, I have to give my, my high school, Dewey Clinton, credit for, it's a typical New York City public school. But um, physics was taught earlier. Physics, you know, I think some schools teach physics, they think physics is hard, so they should teach it last. Physics was taught like along with biology and then chemistry came after and like, so as a result, I'm in 10th, 10th grade taking our regents physics, which is typical, you know, bread and butter physics class in the New York public school system. And um, at that time, to be frank, I was a truant. I was, I was cutting classes and stuff, really wasn't into school as much as I should be. Um, had no idea what physics was and really. And then this guy walks in, um, he had a little bit of a limp because, you know, that's kind of how he walked. And looked a little bit, you know, had like Einstein type of hair, hairstyle. And he walks in and he um, walks to the front of the room first and then he writes this equation and then everybody gets scared. We're like, whoa, 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 whoa. And then he leaves the front of the room and comes and sits amongst us. Like, so he sits on a desk. So, you know, he's, so now he's amongst the class. We're like, okay. And then he goes into his inside pocket and we're like, whoa, 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 this guy, what's he got in there? And he pulls out a ball. And then he takes the ball and goes, okay, you know, that equation basically encodes everything about this ball, but also the moon. It was actually Newton's laws, but we didn't know it at the time. And he goes, um, so if I throw this ball up in the air, right? Um, when it gets to the very top, the velocity is zero. What is the velocity when a ball comes back to the bottom? The bottom? So many students, including myself, at first we were like, oh man, we don't even know how to solve this equation. Like, you know, what's going on here? And then um, at that, in that moment, like what happened was I just started visualizing the ball going up and down, up and down, up and down. Very, and I just, you know, had intuited and just spontaneously yelled out, not, um, the velocity would be, you know, exactly the same as it was when it left your hand. And then this guy gets very excited. He goes, uh, that is the, you know, that's how a physicist think. You're thinking with your intuition. Um, anyway, after class ends, he comes up to me, he goes, I would like you to come to my office. He goes, you know, you have the, you have the mind of a physicist. And I'm like, of course, I'm just, I'm chewing, right? Just, I'm like this, <laughs> I'm saying to myself, really me? Like, I'm smart. Like it was a, but you know, looking back at it, it's like if all teachers can be more, teachers can be more like this, you know, um, because a lot of what was going on with me was, um, and a lot of my classmates, you know, we, you know, kids growing up in, in the hood and like, we're not really thinking this of ourselves. The media and society doesn't portray that about us. So to have a teacher just say, say something like that was really transformative. So Mr. Kaplan wasn't just um, a mentor for you in physics. He was also a mentor for you in music. So tell us about that part of the story. Yeah, that's the other thing too, because, you know, I, I grew up in a musical family and, you know, um, and I at the time did have a saxophone, although I wasn't really, you know, playing it. Um, was, I wasn't formally playing the, practicing and playing the instrument. Mr. Kaplan was also a jazz musician. He was also a composer. And he was both the chairperson, um, the head of the music department, 
and the science departments at my high school. So he was really one of these people that was comfortable doing and being both. And so when I would go to his office, so his office was the kind of place where he had this huge office and he had anything to do with music in the office and anything to do with science in the same office. And so that was sort of like a normal thing for me to see, right? That, oh, I mean, he was the first example of a scientist I've seen, right? Um, so for me, it was like, I kind of, my first um, interaction with a, a scientist was somebody that was also a musician, right? So it was like, okay, I'm gonna become that. That's a normal thing, right? <laughs> um, now, having said that, I mean, like, that's not what media and, and, and you know, TV and movies and, you know, um, stereotypes were portraying. I was also aware of that too. And so there was a bit of a tension as I progressed along about the music, being a musician and being a, being a scientist. And am I serious enough as a scientist if I'm engaging as, a, you know, my life, if I'm, if I'm also playing music and, or am I really, you know, that, that tension was remained, but Mrs. Mr. Kaplan served as like, you know, this courageous soul that, you know, embodied both. It, it was important that it happened at a young age, you know? So let's talk a little bit more about this. Your book, The Jazz of Physics, promises to reveal the secret link between music and the structure of the universe. So I have two, a couple of questions about that. Um, so what is that secret link? And how did you come to discover it? Yeah, the secret is, you know, it's really funny because the secret, that was a bit of a, you know, a, what do you call it? When you, a gimmick to get people to buy the book. <laughs> I mean, like, no, but so the secret is not really that much of a secret. I mean, the secret link really um, had to do with, and it's not really a secret because it's obvious when you think about it, has to do with vibration, right? It has to do with, 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 with um, resonance and the properties of waves. That basically, if you look at like a lot of what modern physics is saying, if you look at like particle physics and um, you know, the theory of general relativity, you can understand a lot of that physics with just understanding the, you know, the vibe, uh, how waves behave and how they interact with each other and how waves manifest themselves as different presentations of nature, of the physical world. And of course, likewise, you know, um, you know, a lot of, you know, when we think about sound and, you know, the musical tones and how they come together in an ordered, structured way, um, and synthesis, right? Like the music of Brian Eno, for example, right? And you can, you know, you can understand that also through the lens of, um, of, of waves and vibration. So that was definitely one link. And the other link, of course, had to do with, I think, improvisation. Like, you know, that, you know, I found that the way that physicists would, would some ways, some styles of doing physics had a, an improvisational nature to it. Um, the path of discovery of, um, you know, had to do with, you know, these eureka moments had to do with some kind of improvisation. And of course, I mean, improvisation is central to jazz music. So one of the um, really interesting or, you know, terrific things about this book, uh, especially for folks like me who know no next to nothing about physics, is your use of uh, analogies to illuminate, you know, complicated questions of theoretical physics. So say a little bit about why analogies are so important a tool for you in your work. Because oftentimes I'm, I've, oftentimes I'm very dumb. <laughs> you know, 
No, seriously. Oftentimes, like I'm really struggling to understand something new that I'm thinking about, or I'm working on, or even remember something that I should have, I should know. But so, in physics research, right, you're trying to push the boundary of knowledge. It's not just about things that we know already, and you're trying to learn it. It's like you know, you're trying to build on what's known to create something new or to have a different way of looking at it. Sometimes just a different shift, right? This also happens in other fields. Uh, what's your field, um, Paul? I'm, I'm an English professor. Right, so I'm sure, again, right? I mean, I remember one of the most painful things I had to do in college. I went to Haverford College and we, we were all required to take um, um, expository writing and like you have to read all the, the great books and stuff for an entire year. Faulkner, we had to read Faulkner and like all these great books, right? And I remember we had to do literary criticism. And part of doing that was um, going and looking at how other people's literary criticisms of books. And it was like, wait a minute, for the same book, you had like 15 different pr perspectives. And <laughs> so I'm sure some, I'm, I'm, similar things happen where part of research is also, you know, you have an object and you're providing a completely different shift and perspective on it, right? On something that's known or supposed to be known. So analogies come in for me because, so let's say I'm trying to understand, um, I don't know, you know, the shape, I don't know, the geometry of this book. And, you know, it, it has this thickness, has these pages. And I know very little, this is the new thing. I'm, I'm some alien, I've come down, I've discovered this, this object. But in my alien world, I have, a, I have this cell phone. And I know a gazillion things about this. I know this thing really, really, really well. And the idea of the analogy, uh, the power of analogy is to say, you know what, let me imagine that this book is like the thing I understand really well. And then I, and I compare these two things and I find the places where they really overlap, right? So I use what I know really, really well to under understand something in terms of the things that I, the thing that I know well, that's the analogy making, the thing I don't know really well. And I find that there's so many similarities. Then it gives me a sense of some, a, a hook, a way of, a way of um, getting a toehold on, on the thing that I don't understand. And where the analogy starts to break down is where I start generating interesting questions so I can learn about this thing. And that to me is where it gives you, it gives you a way in. Um, by using things that you know really well and you understand well and making an analogy um, or making a comparison, right? Or a similarity between the thing that you don't understand. And what's left behind is a place to really focus and look for the questions. So um, that book that you were just waving around, that's your second book. Uh, you've just gotten the copy of that second book, A Fear of a Black Universe. An Outsider's Guide to the Future of Physics. So can you tell us a little bit about the argument of that? The advertisement there, but I'm very, I'm very happy about this. Um, <laughs> tell us a little bit about, about, that, about that book, what, you're, what that book is about. Well, since I'm, I, I do a very bad job, at, I think I'm just going to read. Can I read the back description of it? <laughs> okay. Um, it says, a cosmologist argues that physics must embrace the excluded, listen to the unheard, and be unafraid of being wrong. In Fear of a Black Universe, Stefan Alexander shows, that's me, 
that great physics requires us to think outside the mainstream. His approach leads him to three fundamental principles. The principle of invariance, that's basically the principle of symmetry, the quantum principle, and the principle of emergence. Combining them with insights from African, Indian, and Western philosophy, Alexander explores some of physics' greatest mysteries from the Big Bang to consciousness. Drawing on his experience as a Black physicist, he makes a compelling and empowering case for diversifying science. I don't think I could do better than um, what my editor wrote. So let's talk a little bit about that, um, that project, uh, diversifying science. So yes. you're, um, you're the president of the National Society of Black Physicists. So tell us about that society and the work that it does. Sure. So the National Society, we call ourselves NSBP. Um, we're going into our 50th anniversary. Um, it was founded in the late 70s. Um, and in a nutshell, you know, it was founded, it was founded not because, you know, Black physicists wanted to isolate ourselves, but um, at that time, there were a handful of really powerful um, physicists um, who were not Black, <laughs> who basically went public and said that they don't think African-Americans can do physics. Um, they were like people who were pushing more the eugenics thing that were genetically incapable of doing these things. Obviously, complete hoax. But anyway, it was these are powerful people. So, um, you know, a group of Black physicists got together um, and decided, well, we have to make sure that we continue to do physics, you know, regardless of maybe how the majority community thinks about us, we have to continue doing our work. And um, so they started to informally get together um, and give um, talks, professional talks, and try to collaborate in research projects together and engage each other's students. And that kind of, that structure of, um, you know, mentoring and really pushing research and excellence and really supporting the professional lives, um, as well as the morale of, um, of, of young black scientists, right? Grew into a, now a 2000 member society that has, you know, we have people from all over the world as well. I mean, it's mostly an American thing, but we have people, we have members from Africa, we have a few in Europe now. Um, and yeah, and it's mainly, you know, we have an annual meeting every year. Um, and that's actually the, NSBP has always functioned as two main things. We have an annual meeting. Um, by the way, membership is open to everyone. Anyone can be a member of NSBP. And we just ask that you support the principle of, um, of, like, of excellence in science for African-Americans in physics. Um, and you, you get behind supporting that. Um, but we have an annual meeting every year um, where we all gather from all over the world. And we, have, and we basically have scientific talks um, for a couple of days. And you know we socialize and um, around, of course, our common love for, for physics. Um, and we also, it's also a time where the el where you know one generation plays our active role in mentoring and providing um, resources and career opportunities and you know advice for graduate school. So in a nutshell, when I was at Harvard, I was the only black physics major. Um, Harvard is a small Quaker liberal arts college outside of Philly. And it was a great place for me to study physics. And I had great professors. Um, but you know, there wasn't, you know, it, there was a need for me, not a need, but I remember that as an 18-year-old, when I went to my first NSVP meeting, I saw other kids that looked like me, professors, like black physics professors at mostly historically black universities. It was a way of me realizing 
that, you know, there were other unicorns out there. <laughs> um, and so I was a student and now I'm, I'm the president and it's all, what we do is all volunteer. It's really a labor of love because many of us who benefited um, when we were students, we feel compelled to serve. So a big part of our, our tradition at NSBP is that of service, that, you know, success is also a function of service. It's not only about me, 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 and like what have you. Now, NSBP is like, like any other organization, there are things that we, we, um, we have to, we, you know, have to um, pay attention to. And, you know, one, as, as the, so we are also, we, we pay attention to the, you know, the young, the, the next generation. And we, one, one of the things I did in my administration was to expand um, student leadership and student activity and involvement. And so we have a, a very active student council. It's, um, and yeah, so that, that's NSBP in a nutshell. So thanks so much for telling us about it. It sounds like an amazing organization. I'd like to give you an opportunity now to, to um, share any advice that you would have for uh, young black people who are currently interested in science and physics, whether they're in high school or in college, what would you say to encourage them? Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that, you know, it's sort of a, I don't know if it's an elephant in the room is that, you know, we respond, I think a lot of us, we, you know, I would say that, um, may, you know, don't, um, you have a lot more in common with Albert Einstein and, you know, and, 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 some, and Richard Feynman, some of the, you know, the greats that you see that we, in, in the media, portrayed in the media, than you would like to imagine. So I think it's really important that young people and especially young people of color understand that you don't have to um, be like, you know, the, there, there are stereotypes out there of what a scientist should look like and act like we see it in, in TV shows and in movies. That's just noise. I mean, being your, your true genuine self, self it, it's actually the best place, the best place where you can bring the best contribution um, to being a scientist. It has nothing to do with the, the ways in which the media portrays what, what a scientist is like. Um, you know, that, so that, that's one thing I would say. Um, the second thing I would say is, um, yeah, I mean, like, if I can do it, you can do it because there's really, there's nothing really, you know, I'm not, I wasn't like, you know, the superstar kid, you know, I went to, you know, Bronx science and I went to, I, you know, even in college I struggled and I wasn't, you know, right. But I, I had a passion. Um, I asked a lot of questions. Um, and I, I, you know, in my book, I really talk about that. I talk about basically the, you know, what, 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 what science really looks like, you know, there's learning science and there's doing science. And there are many different ways that you can learn that, learn science and build competencies and, and, um, build that skill set. There's not one axis for which, for how that's done. And, um, and, and definitely now with the advent of the of the internet and of, of course there are all these ways that you can go and like reinforce your knowledge base but understand that science is not just only about learning it it's about doing it it's about creating new science and i think that in i'm not going to be presumptuous uh, in the jazz of physics what i show is that 
you know, already in certain elements of African-American culture, we, we're already doing science. We're already innovating. We're already engaging in scientific types thinking. So we don't have to be like anybody else. And, you know, that's, yeah, in a nutshell. Thanks. So um, you just were saying that, you know, in African-American music, we're already being scientists, we're already innovating. Tell us a little bit about what John Coltrane thought about um, Albert Einstein. I didn't realize that there was a link between uh, Coltrane and, and Einstein. Tell us about that. Yeah, I'll tell that story with a story. Um, so I somehow had a sense in, in the research for my book that there was that Coltrane was doing more than just playing the side. He was like a scientist with his instrument and with his music. So I luckily came across um, a conversation and an interaction with, with David Amram, who is the um, New York, um, Hal um, Bernstein made, um, appointed him to be the composer for the New York Philharmonic, in, I think in the 60s. But anyway, he's a multi-instrumentalist, a brilliant composer, right? And I, I met him and we spoke about Coltrane because he knew Coltrane, they were friends. And um, he said that, and he, so, um, um, David Amram also played with Dizzy Gillespie. And so there was a club outside of, um, called Cafe B Bohemia in the village. And during the intermission, um, Amram comes outside and he sees Coltrane eating a pie, okay? Maybe it was a blueberry pie. And, and so they were, um, they talked a lot of music theory shop, right? That's what they did. So because, you know, Coltrane was heavily into music theory as, is evident. So anyway, so they they were engaging in their little, you know, their talk. And then Coltrane asked David Amram, hey, what do you what do you think about Einstein? So Amram understood that to me, you know, to say, what do you think about Einstein to Coltrane? And so he asked Coltrane, so what no, what do you think about Einstein? And then he said, Coltrane goes on to reveal like all of this, like information about Einstein's theory of relativity, about black holes, about space-time geometry, and, you know, light cones, and he's going off about Einstein, you know, Einstein's idea, like an in-depth knowledge. And he goes to Amram, you know, you know what Einstein did for physics? Um, I want to do the same thing for music. Now, fast forward, I'm now, I discover now this diagram that John Coltrane drew, there's a hand-drawn diagram that, as a birthday present to Yusuf Latif. And I'm looking at this thing and I'm like, I totally understand what he meant by that because Einstein, basically the fundamental lesson we learned from Einstein, his co ma major contribution to modern physics, including relativity was um, by looking at nature through the lens of invariance. I change something, I change perspective. What remains unchanged when I do that? Well, the speed of light, if I change frames of reference. Or another word for that is symmetry. Like by, by exploiting and discovering hidden symmetries in nature, he was able to understand why, you know, the, 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 you know, the underpinnings of, of how the physical world function and turned out to work well for, for, for actually four of the fundamental forces. Well, Coltrane's diagram basically, right, if you you know, maybe you can, you'll show it to your viewers, um, basically has all of these symmetries and patterns. So it was clear that Train was really, really understood the, you know, the core concept of, of Einstein's work. Like, you know, in, you know, playing with ideas, right? 
and see where it takes you. That's very much right. Um, the thought, the Gedanken experience of Albert Einstein, that's kind of the spirit of what Coltrane was doing and that's scientific. Um, so thanks for that. We're coming to the end of our time. I have just time for one more question. And you know, it's clear from our conversation and from a number of things you've said um, that you are, uh, in addition to being a physicist, in addition to being uh, a musician, you are an educator, you're a teacher. So my question is, um, can you tell me one lesson that you've learned from your students about physics, about the jazz of physics, or about jazz? Whoa, that's a hard question. Um, yeah, one of the things I, I have learned from my students is that for, and, and I, I teach a class called the Jazz of Modern Physics, which is a course that is um, designed for, because we have RISD, the Rhode Island School of Design. So I wanted a class for all, for humanities students who would never take a physics class at Brown to take. And, but I also didn't want to ward anything down. I, I felt that I was able to teach, you know, I challenged myself and the class to, to kind of really teach wave mechanics and modern physics, Newton, Newtonian physics, all that stuff without any assumption of the mathematics or a, a, a pre-exposure to physics. And, it, and one thing I definitely made sure to do was to not give them a final exam, but to give them a final project where they work together in groups. Here's something I learned from this, my students um, was that if you, you get, you, you give them something challenging. And, and if, you, if you really let go and like give them, you know, sort of um, let them at it, they come back with things that you never dreamt of. And, and they run away and they do their own thing. And, it, and they come back with something that no matter how intelligent you think you are, you're not able to come up with. And that to me is, um, I mean, I would say that, that process, um, is something the, you know that um, I've learned. Well, Stefan, on that note, which is a, a lovely note to end on, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. It's been a real pleasure speaking with you. Thank you. A pleasure, too. I've been speaking with Stefan Alexander, professor of physics at Brown University. He'll give a public talk, What a Scientist Learned from Jazz About Innovation, on April 22nd, 2021, as a guest of the University of Oregon's Physics Department and the Oregon Humanities Center. Thanks so much for watching.